Mid-February brought some unusually cold weather to a lot of the U.S. Texas was frigid. A winter storm warning has been issued area-wide and not just for Southeast Texas, but almost the entire state, something I have never seen before. Temperatures dipped into single digits. It was warmer in Anchorage than it was in Dallas. And when everyone cranked up their electric heaters, the grid strained under the load. Millions lost power. At least 40 people died. At least. Decided to go ahead and uh, sleep in the car. Just huddle up together and go on about our business. I mean, we're just trying to stay alive. Lots of things went wrong in Texas, but the failure of the traditional electric grid is not just a Texas story. What does it take to update our electric grids? How can we make them smarter and more reliable? That's today on Brainstorm, the podcast about how tech is reshaping our world. Hi, everyone. I'm Michal Avram. And I'm Brian O'Keefe. So cold weather in Texas created this enormous spike in demand for electricity, right? The grid couldn't keep up with it, especially because the system hadn't been weatherized. Natural gas lines froze. So did some wind turbines. So when we're talking about the grid, we mean the system that is generating and distributing electricity, whether it's coming from solar panels or coal-fired power plants, right? That electricity, it's traveling on power lines. It ends up right on the other end of the outlet where you charge your phone. Right. And to understand what happened in Texas, it's important to know that the state is something of an island when it comes to its electric grid. For the most part, it is not connected to the grids in the neighboring states. It sort of operates as its own closed system, largely. That leaves it more vulnerable, some would say, to these kind of outages because the state wasn't able to ask surrounding states for help and extra energy capacity. While it may be a very worthwhile argument or conversation to have that Texas might do well by being more connected, what we're talking about today is the role that technology plays. And on that front, the answer isn't necessarily building up more energy infrastructure. At least that's according to our first guest, Emmanuel Lagarigue. He is the chief innovation officer at Schneider Electric. And Schneider is an older company that makes both heavy-duty power equipment like transformers and circuit breakers, as well as much newer software to make energy use more efficient. So he says that what's needed to prevent the crisis in Texas from ever happening again is not more grid infrastructure, it's just smarter grid infrastructure. Traditionally, the grid is organized around uh, a central supply, a power plant or several power plants, which are going to distribute power to users, would it be businesses or, or homes. And that power plant and that, that system is usually sized for the peak of demand you would have in, in a given year. Right? So it's very inefficient from a capital deployment standpoint and from even an environment impact. Right? So you need those big power lines and, and crossing the, the, the countryside and put a lot of assets that are not always environmentally friendly. Now, what you do with a smart grid in a world where everybody starts to uh, produce their own energy on the roof of their house, on the roof of their warehouse, you orchestrate and organize the grid differently. You don't need to have that super power plant. You can just size it for the average consumption. And the best way to do that is software. Today, in some countries like 
Australia, for instance, which arguably is probably two or three years ahead of the rest of the world in terms of the energy transition, we are working with utilities on a grid, on a system where actually the utility is not selling power anymore. Uh, everybody is producing, is uploading or downloading power every day. And the role of the utility is to be that software company that orchestrates these balances and that, that demand, that very smart grid. Does that mean that this is all coming from clean energy also, if everybody's producing it themselves or not necessarily? Uh, yes, more and more, because look, what we find today, both in Australia and more and more in the US now, especially in California, in the Northeast and in Texas, a lot of the homeowners and especially, but more importantly, businesses who are reaching out to us saying, hey, number one, I'm paying too much for my electricity. The electricity I'm purchasing from the grid is very expensive. I know that if I were producing my own energy with solar panels and storing it with batteries, I know I would get a better deal. The grid isn't stable because I'm in Northern California or because each time there is a weather event in the Northeast and now in the South, I'm losing power for several days and this is impacting my business. And third, I'm a business. I've committed in front of my shareholders and my customers that I would decarbonize my operations by a given date. And my utility is still sending me fossil fuel-based coal, oil or gas, I don't want that dirty fuel anymore. So cheaper, more resilient and more sustainable. The, the point is that it's, I understand it's very difficult for the traditional energy companies to think in different terms because for decades we have been thinking about an energy system that supplies with a very big supply chain, channeling fuels from the other side of the planet, refining them and then distributing them to consumers. And this is why the first reaction was, oh, let's do big wind farms and solar farms. But what you've done with this, you just replicate the old business model with new technologies. What is really going to change is that this energy transition is going to be demand driven, like all the other energy transitions in the past, because people care about hot showers and cold beers, and they will care more and more about the resilience of their energy supply and the sustainability of their energy supply. And going back to the hardware and software topic here, how much of redesigning grids is sticking some chips and connecting it to software? And how much of it is like, do you have to just go in and completely rip these apart and build completely different grids? Well, the good news is that it doesn't entail any any big investment, right? Because in the next 15 to 20 years as a planet, we will consume probably twice as much electricity as we do today. Why? Because, uh, well, the economy is becoming more and more digital and behind this there are data centers which are using a lot of electricity and, and so on and so forth. So let's keep the current infrastructure. Let's not just build more, which is what they've done in Australia. In Australia, the government said at some point, hey, we want to be efficient here. Uh, we're not going to continue building all those big lines and those big, these big power plants. And this is what probably California is heading towards. And Massachusetts and New York are also uh, going in that direction. So no need to build more infrastructure. Let's keep what we have. Let's replace a few of those fossil fuel-based central power plants, but that's it. The rest will be built on, on the roofs of uh, warehouses, manufacturing plants, uh, homes, and that will be financed by the entire financial community, which is just dying to invest in ESG. So it's kind of a virtual circle where you create a decentralized and modern grid. It's financed by capital providers who have a lot of appetite to invest in ESG these days. You create jobs, by the way, because you have to install those batteries, you have to install the, the, the EV chargers and the solar panels. 
and you create a grid that is much more sustainable, sized exactly to what you need and much more resilient at the end. The only condition is that you need to have the right software. What areas are most exciting to you in terms of future innovations here that can really unlock even more opportunity here? This is why we say that the energy transition will, is going to be enabled by two technologies. One is batteries and the second is AI, is, is software. AI will enable scenarios like, Alexa, how much power do I have in my batteries? Because I know where the storm is coming, the grid may, may go off. I want to be ready for the weekend. And, and if you need to tap uh, energy from the battery of my EV, just do it. Uh, I just want my EV to be charged on Monday morning at 7 when I go, I go to work. So that type of scenarios uh, is going to be enabled by AI. And if your house uh, is storing more electricity than you need or if producing more electricity than you need, you can even sell it to your neighbor, right? So, and all these transactions will be automatic. So AI is number one. Batteries, there is still a lot of research there in, in batteries that is being accelerated by the rapid adoption of EVs. And I think in batteries, it's, it's interesting because someone could think of batteries as an old technology, everything has been invented. There are breakthroughs every day. I found it really interesting, Michal, in listening to Emmanuel that, you know, so much of the focus in the wake of the disaster in Texas, the power going out, people losing their lives and all the damage that was done, so much of the talk was about the source of the power generation, wind power versus natural gas, sustainable versus traditional power. And what Emmanuel is talking about from a large, venerable company in this space is really more of like a smart, you know, technology response, the kind of thing we're seeing in other parts of the world, you know, how this can be a tech solution rather than just a, a source solution. Yeah, it's, it is really remarkable. I mean, this is a company that has kind of its, its history is rooted in selling the nuts and bolts for this kind of infrastructure. And basically what he's saying is that the future is smarter software, the future of smarter grids and of, you know, alleviating some of these issues that we're seeing. So just like in every other industry, software is eating the world yet again. Michal, Emmanuel laid out this really cool vision of the smart grid and software working seamlessly to reroute power where it's needed and to conserve it here and sell it there. So it's really a nice vision to imagine. And it's something we've been kind of hearing about for a while. But what does it look like in the real world right now? Yeah. So to answer this question, we spoke with Michael Putt, and he's the director of smart grid innovation at Florida Power and Light which is the utility that serves about half of Florida. And he says that coordinating electricity supply when some of it is coming from a natural gas plant and some of it is coming from someone's rooftop is actually really complicated, but it's also becoming more and more possible. Listen, there's a lot of opportunities giving customers op opportunities to uh, host solar in their homes, to, to charge an EV with a rapid charger to do these things. And as a, as a world changes, we're excited about the electrification of industry uh, for the environment, and we think it's, it's the right way to go. But before you get there, 
just having that generation can actually cause you know power quality issues. It can cause flickering and other things. And we're you know we're required to provide a certain level of reliability, not just keeping the lights on, but keeping a certain quality of power. So those are all things you have to plan on and and understand as folks want to connect distributed generation. We take a lot of measures to accommodate that. I'm certainly no power grid expert, Mihal. I don't know if you pick that up, but um, I play one on a podcast sometimes. But it strikes me as an incredible challenge for a company like Florida Power and Light to keep everybody's power flowing evenly and at the same time create this adaptive system where energy is flowing around where it needs to and to make it all you know, work seamlessly. Well, this is your lucky day because I am a power grid expert, Brian. I don't know if you knew that. Zam, pow. <laughs> no, I'm totally not. But I know how to ask questions. That's actually like the only thing I know how to do. So, okay. The way that they try to accommodate this is, as you might expect, complex, but it has to do with collecting data and then being able to act on that data. So this all goes back to the smart meters and sensors that are getting installed and artificial intelligence that is then able to, you know, act on it, right, in order to anticipate demand, at least at some point in the future. So as more and more people are putting solar panels on the roofs of their businesses or homes, all of that smart technology is going to enable people's home energy generation to seamlessly integrate with a larger grid and do a better job of collecting even more data. All of these smart technologies are preparing for the day everyone has a solar panel on their roof. We're not quite there yet, but Mike Putt says the sensors and predictive analytics are already producing some impressive results. So these smart switches and sensors we put out, and and a lot of it also occurred when we put uh, automatic meter reading out in 2011 or so. That just obviously helped us with the meter reading, but it gave us a lot of data. And this extra sensors gives us data. The smart switches are great for restoring, but they give us data. And it's not just leverage the individual's data, it's combining the data from all the different inputs and at that point solving problems. So we're now we're moving, uh, not just from restoring power or preventing a blink, now we're looking at how do we predict outages? How do we see things that are you know, happening on the grid before the lights go out? Could be it could be the next thunderstorm when the wind blows a little more. It could be you know so that 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 point. But we can go out proactively. This has been something that the the customers have taken them aback when we knock on their door and say your lights are going to go out and they say well, we didn't call you. So we, we've had customers actually at times turn us away, and then we've come back and had to repair it later. But no, this has been very successful for our customers to predict the outages and get out there. And it also is good for our workforce because it takes unplanned work and moves it to a planned uh, situation. So one obvious concern to think about as the grid becomes more digital, as it becomes software driven, is that anything that is computer-oriented in this world becomes a cybersecurity threat. Anything that can be hacked will be hacked eventually. And we're seeing that more and more. So that is definitely going to give people pause because we're talking about essential systems that could be compromised by outside hackers who might have very bad intentions. Yeah, and where there are cybersecurity issues because of smarter technology and more connected technology, there's usually potential privacy issues too. And this does entail 
a lot of data collection that we're not used to. People already have Nest thermometers and those kind of devices, but we're talking about this on like a whole other level of connectivity, right? Absolutely. And, you know, there's probably a list of other things that people who are skeptics of this whole push could be a little worried about. You know, all the modernization sensors, the data collection we're talking about, the equipment to make this happen, this is all upfront capital. And we're talking about a lot of money. And a lot of the folks that are singing the praises of smart grid technology are going to sell us the smart grid technology. So that doesn't mean it's not the right move to make. I mean, I think, you know, we have an aging system that's based on largely on fossil fuel energy production, and it's evolving and it's natural that it's going to evolve. And it's probably very, very important for the climate and for the economy to make these investments. And as we think about how to scale up these systems, these smart grid systems, there's so much interest in the development of the technology. To get more into it, I talked to Dr. Elta Colo. She leads the Grid Edge team at energy consulting firm Wood McKenzie, and she's working on how to add more flexibility in U.S. electricity markets. She takes the grid very seriously, Michal. When we did our interview, she was wearing a sweatshirt that said, microgrids are dope. You know what else is pretty dope? What's that, Brian? Her vision for the power grid over the next decade. I think we're in this like fantastic phase right now. So I'm going to kind of take you take you on a journey here of what I see over the next 10 years. We're seeing technologies really start to scale. So between now and 2025, we're really looking at figuring out the business models around these different types of distributed technologies and resources and figuring out how to pool them in such a way that we can make money with them. Whether it's just fleets of batteries, fleets of electric vehicle charging, you know, if we think about microgrids with a mix of different types of technologies on the customer site, right? So we're in this process of figuring that out and also putting significant capital behind creating that scale. So if we kind of go on this journey towards shaping demand over the next 10 years and the scales that we're achieving in solar and storage and electric vehicles charging, we're getting to that 2030 point, right? And this is the point where you're starting to see come to fruition all of the decarbonization and renewable portfolio standard commitments that have been made across the U.S. So we're talking about 33 plus utilities with multi-state footprints that have committed to decarbonization goals. And now where we're at with the Biden administration, you're kind of seeing this aggressive commitment towards a decarbonized electricity sector by 2035. So it's all of this guiding us in this next decade. And the capital is flowing in that direction. Where's the capital coming from? I mean, and, and related, I wanted to ask you, you mentioned the Biden administration. Do we need federal investment in the U.S. to help incentivize changes in the grid? And then where will the private sector investment come from? I think what federal investment will do is create a sense of confidence and security in the private sector. So I think if you're seeing that top-down support, the private sector feels more secure in making these long-term investments, right? Because any Thing related to infrastructure, you're talking about a 30 to 40 year investment. So if you actually have that support, the private sector will come in and scale it because they know that they're in this for the long haul. If the federal government is putting money into it, where would they be putting their money? Like what would they be building or funding that would help push this forward? 
I mean, I see them supporting the grid in kind of their own way, in a very simple way, right? If we talk about electrification, the government does have fleets of vehicles right now committing to decarbonizing their own fleet is actually committing to decarbonizing infrastructure. So we're talking about taking the, the government fleets electric, building the infrastructure to charge electric vehicles and that kind of thing? Yep, exactly. So the other phrase I want to ask you about is grid edge. You yeah. lead grid edge research. That is a phrase that has become popular over the last few years, the grid edge. Explain what grid edge means and you know what's exciting in that area. So essentially the way that I explain it to people, think about you know when you walk out on the street, think about the poles and wires leading up to your home and the technologies that sit on those poles and wires. So you may be you know, walking around your neighborhood and right now, at least in my neighborhood, I keep seeing a bunch of electric vehicle charging stations, for instance, right? That is a technology that is attached to the grid. And then when I go to my house, I may have solar, I may have a battery storage system, I may even have my own electric vehicle charging port and my Nest thermostat. So it's essentially where the poles and wires meet my home, touch the meter and behind the meter. And essentially all of that innovation that is taking place to essentially support kind of, I would say, broader decarbonization goals that we have. So you're wearing your sweatshirt that says microgrids are dope. Um, how does a microgrid fit in with the grid edge into the bigger grid? Like, where does that fit into the puzzle? I mean, I think microgrids are interesting in the sense that you are able to seamlessly disconnect from the larger grid and operate autonomously with a mix of various distributed energy resources. So this, you know, maybe solar and storage. We can't forget about our backup generators, you know, fuel fuel-based ones as well. So I think the, the point of microgrids and the reason why we actually attach a specific terminology to it is that we are able to seamlessly disconnect from the grid without causing a disruption. Now, this can be something that is controlled by a utility or it can be from the customer. So this, again, depends on the type of mechanism and arrangement uh, that you may have. In your practice at Wood McKenzie on Grid Edge, do you have a metric for measuring the demand for interest in Grid Edge or investment in Grid Edge? Um, I mean, we can look at this from several aspects. If we look at venture capital, for instance, in the space, we have tracked over the last decade nearly $17 billion in venture capital that has flown into the space. And especially if you want to measure this from the activity that the energy majors are having in the space, Shell, Total, BP. These are the biggest players in the space, and they're looking towards building these distributed types of practices and supporting the growth at the edge of the grid. So you say they're looking to it. Have there been major acquisitions in the space that you would point to as examples of that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think kind of a noteworthy player here would be Shell across the board. Um, mm -hmm. So they have invested uh, in the acquisition of Sonnen, the battery storage provider out of Germany. They also do solar. They also install electric vehicle charging. So that's one big player that they acquired here in the U.S. a couple of years ago. They acquired green lots for electric vehicle charging. And again, these are just some examples and do you expect to see Shell and the other big energy companies continue to make these strategic acquisitions? Yes, and I would say probably in a much more aggressive fashion, I would say, in the next year.
Brian, I find it really interesting that Shell, of all companies, is becoming a player in this new world of the grid, right? Yeah, absolutely. And it's tied into these bigger trends because, you know, Shell, BP, these energy majors that have been oil and gas giants for so long, they're making aggressive pledges about moving away from oil and gas and decarbonizing their businesses. And it's tied into this bigger trend of, you know, pressure from investors, pressure from stakeholders and employees to address climate change. And the fact that the whole transportation infrastructure is beginning to rapidly change, you know, it's not just Tesla. We have Ford and GM and Volvo and Volkswagen. They're all moving aggressively into electric cars. Those are all millions and millions of cars in the future. They're going to be plugging into the grid. So these investments that we need to make in the grid and making it have better capacity, smarter capacity, they're not just about avoiding tragic outages like we had in Texas. They're about enabling the next generation of technology that we all need to live in a a safer, cleaner planet. Well, Brian, I am uh, delighted and surprised a bit that you ended this whole conversation on such an optimistic note. Thank you for that. You're welcome. I didn't say we're going to get there, by the way. I just said, you know, we (laughs) need to try. All right. Well, Here's hoping that is it for today. Join us next time for more talk on how tech is reshaping our world. The Brainstorm Podcast is a production of Fortune Media. Our show is written and produced by Wyatt Orm and edited by Nicole Vergala. Music is by Brian Campbell of Signal Sounds NYC. Executive producers are Mason Cohn and Megan Arnold. I don't know. It was good. I like the idea that really, you're like, like, you know what? Episode. We're like 17 episodes in. You actually did a pretty good interview, Brian. Way to go. Oh, please. <laughs> I'm just, I was complimenting him, not you. No, I know, but... I know, I know. I don't deserve it. <laughs>